Buckle up and get ready for another episode of the Geoholics podcast. But before we get started, here are a few words from our friends of the program. Bad Elf. I'm told by the Bad Elf folks that choosing a company name can be quite challenging, but apparently copious amounts of German beer and hearty cuisine greatly aid the brainstorming process. The Bad Elf name was conceived in October 2009 while the team was attending a conference in Ludwigsburg, Germany. Bad Elf envisions, designs, and manufactures niche hardware and software as it relates to data collection. They are changing the business model and, quite frankly, the world of GPS by planning to democratize it, meaning making it realistic for anyone and everyone to collect survey-grade data. Bad Elf is engineering magic, and I can't wait to see what they have in store for our listeners as we move forward into 2020. Please visit bad-elf.com for more information. Land Surveyors United. Land Surveyors United is not just a community of land surveyors. It is a living library, a social network, an educational platform, a discussion forum, a theater, and so much more. The LSU Network is a rapidly evolving community where professional land surveyors around the world share what they have learned during their career as a land surveyor. Inside, you can both contribute to the collective knowledge about surveying shared for future generations or learn something new every single day. The Land Surveyors United team and members of this community are working hard every day to break down the barriers that have for so long kept the industry isolated. In this network, the language and cultural obstacles have been eliminated from your communication. Please visit LandSurveyorsUnited.com for more information. Parkland College Land Survey Program. The land surveying program at Parkland College in Champaign, Illinois offers two schedule formats which provide opportunities to both traditional students and working adults. The conventional track is a certificate or associate degree option with on-campus classes throughout the week. The weekend land surveying program presents an affordable, convenient way for working adults to complete required coursework to become a competent technician or work towards professional licensure. Both formats include traditional techniques, current applications with modern equipment, as well as emerging technologies like drones and UAVs. The instructional staff includes five licensed surveyors with wide-ranging experience. Parkland's land surveying program was also the proud recipient of the 2016 NCWES Surveying Award. Please visit parkland.edu forward slash surveying for more information. Unifly Aero Solutions, LLC. Unifly was born in 2015 out of a vision to unify drone surveying, data management, and CAD conversion under a single umbrella, creating a one-stop shop that solves all your problems. Unifly's surveyors, analysts, and drones fly the extra mile to bring this vision to life every single day within your own office. Engineered to fit all your requirements, Unifly follows a unique 3D approach, that being drones. Easy to deploy, high-precision drones to add an edge to your surveying tools, taking your operational efficiency and mapping analysis up a few notches. Data. Infinitely improved cloud-based data processing is now reality thanks to their tightly controlled data analytics and management system. Elevate your business to new heights by effectively processing your data for enhanced productivity. Drafting. Unifly provides end-to-end solutions under one roof by offering CAD drafting and conversion solutions for your ortho photos, allowing you to process your drone data in any format you need. Please visit unifly.aero for more information. Thanks again to our friends of the program. If you too would like to be part of the cool kids as well, send us an email at info at thegeoholics.com to find out more. We've got another great episode on tap for you. So thanks again for listening. And please continue to like and share our podcast with your professional network as we are relying on you to spread the word about the geoholics.
right, you guys ready? Let's do this. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I know you have other options when it comes to geomatics podcasts. <laughs> Maybe one. Sorry. <laughs> but that, one, are, that one came out of me. I didn't, I didn't expect it. <laughs> we, we appreciate you listening to uh, episode 21 of the Geoholics, a podcast produced by and for GMX professionals. Also known as the Sammy don't, Sosa no, don't episode. Do it. Let's, <laughs> let's go Roberto Clemente. We're in a baseball mood. I'm from Chicago. Dude, 21-foot wall. Oh, man. For a reason. <laughs> <laughs> he's legendary in Chicago. I don't care what anybody says. Uh, he uh, is a cheater, though. But well, We can go into that later. <laughs> we don't go down that rabbit hole. Exactly. I know. Nothing bad about the Cubs. <laughs> Just a reminder, anybody that donates 20 bucks or more to the Geoholics GoFundMe account will receive a couple highly sought-after Geoholics bracelets and have their name highlighted on the next podcast. So a little uh, motivation there. A couple of bracelets? Yeah. We're, well, we're, man, yeah, we're, man, up we're, we're just handing them out left and right. <laughs> I also want to take a quick second to mention the Professional Surveyors of Canada. Eh? Eh? They are doing some really great things. I've been doing some research, talked to some folks up there. We got some things in the works. But they have this... These videos, they call them the whiteboard videos on their homepage. And I'm going to give you that website. It's psc-gpc.ca. And there's really, really informative videos. And from what I understand, they're getting ready to release uh, a new one coming up. Can you up go over all those letters so. again? I sure can. psc-gpc.ca. And that is the uh, Professional Surveyors of Canada. So take a few minutes to check it out. Uh, well worth it. They're doing some really cool things up there. And uh, I think we're really close to forming a partnership. So we'll, uh, we'll have some exciting news here in the near future. That opening number, of course, is by Kolars. The name of that song is Dangerous. Kolars are husband and wife, Rob and Lauren. Warren, Warren, Warren's smoking hot. Warren, Warren <laughs> is, huh? What Warren, about Lauren? Lauren? Lauren's not so bad either. And uh, some big news there. They just embarked on a, uh, a new tour opening up for St. Motel. So that's big news. It's like a 30-city tour. They just came through Phoenix. Unfortunately, I was out of town. Didn't get to see them. But with that, they also released a new song, a cover of Nick Gilder's classic, Here Comes the Night. Awesome video. Check it out on YouTube. And also check out their uh, self-titled record called Colars. And it's available on Spotify, Apple Music. Such a fun band. And we're really, uh, really lucky to have them on board with us. Uh, we are not in Studio One tonight. We are, in fact, at Helton Brewing Company in the brew house. Our second... Well, it's a close second, most favorite place to be. But the good news is we have Brian Helton with us tonight, and he's going to tell us what's new and exciting at Helton Brewing. Brian. The man himself. It is all yours, buddy. All right. Well, we're kind of rolling into uh, Arizona Beer Week, so we're getting kind of uh, steamed, you know, generated going for that. So the uh, Beer Fest, of course, Strong Ale is on February 8th, which if you guys haven't been to one, you need to. It's probably by far the best beer festival in the state. Um we have an Imperial Stout. We're kind of rolling out with that. We did a collaboration with Rage Fury, a new brewery that's popping up. Um, we did a collaboration with Wandering Tortoise, Justin, with all his other uh, subsidiaries, which is like, you know, I'm not going to go through all of them. He's got like <laughs> six of them now. It's unreal. I'm not sure here yeah. to push him, yeah, but yeah, yeah, he's an amazing guy right now. But anyway, it's going to be a, a raspberry pineapple sour. So we got that rolling. And, uh, yeah, we got some good news that we're going to unleash during uh, that week as well. We just signed with a distributor, so we're excited about that. We're going to get our beer all over the state. Awesome. And that's pretty much why I built the place. It's a 10,000-square-foot building that uh, 
We had to continue to put money back into the infrastructure of a new glycol and new tanks and a new canning line. And here we are. So, yeah, I'm excited. I'm celebrating, you know. Congratulations, man. That is yeah. such great news. I'm so happy for you. Yeah, That's where we you. say cheers. Yeah, cheers. Yeah, Thank yeah, you, guys. Cheers, no Enjoy. doubt. Yep. Uh, so you mentioned the, uh, the 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 Strong Ale Festival. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you guys bring into that? What's the ABV on that one? I know, like, doesn't it have to be a certain, like, above a certain I'm ABV? I'm thinking that, that one's coming in around 11 or 12. Oh, that's um, it? We still have, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I first started, when I first moved here, uh, I mean, what, 20 years ago? Nah, maybe about 14, 15 years ago. Anyway, this festival started in a parking lot at Papago. So mm. there's probably like seven or eight of us brewers that showed up to it. And, you know, now I think we hit 60,000 people last year that went to it. You know, don't That's quote crazy. me, yeah. you know, but yeah. That's awesome. So it's, it's definitely one of the better beer festivals. But, yeah, we're going to be bringing a bunch of different beers um, every hour, tapping a different one. So, yeah. So you're telling me beer brings a crowd. Beer brings a crowd. Imagine that. If you pour it, they will come. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned Papago. Yeah. I don't know if we've had this conversation before, but do you know Ron? Yeah, Ron yeah, Ron's yeah. great, man. Yep. Hey, if you guys ever, well, not your listeners because he doesn't want to be inundated, but the guy it's actually has more connection over in Brussels than any guy I've ever known. Yep. So if you guys ever want to take a beer tour or get into some of these Trappist beers, he's got a connection over there that's unreal. And Ron is an amazing individual, has a lot of great information. But I remember, like, I'm really short on my text or my email. Certain people, like, email, like, all right, thank you, done. You know, that's me. Yeah. Him? No. It's like eight paragraphs, <laughs> you know. He brings out the best in you. Oh, my God. But, yeah, Ron's an amazing guy. He uh, definitely grew Papago to the point which, you know, of course, Huss and all, you know, yep. purchased and moved on with that and made it a great, you know, orange blossom, great beer. Yep. But yeah, Ron's a great guy and yeah. very knowledgeable about European um, tours and beers, and he has connections that are unreal. He does, no doubt. And uh, why don't you should set up like a tour or something like that? You know, maybe get ten people to head over there. And we, I guess, that I mean, was I, a deal back in the day that if he could get a brewer to yeah. go with him, and yeah. that would help out with you know the logistics of you know point A to point B or whatever selling. I have no idea. Yep. Uh, but that was always his thing. He would bring an American brewer as well. Um, but yeah, it's, if you go over there and hit some of these Trappist beers and see what they're doing and how they're doing it. And it's not what people think. It's not like you're taking a tour of Coors or Bud, yeah. you know, this massive production facilities. A lot of these places are out in the middle of nowhere. You know, when we went to West, well, I shouldn't say which one, you know, we went to one and we, we didn't get there to like nine thirty or 10. You know, me and my ex-wife, we pulled in and we sat at a bar hoping to get some dinner, right? They chastised us because we're stupid Americans that we didn't have proper dinner arrangements <laughs> and we had no dinner. And they have no fast food over there, by the way, as well. So you're just like, we need food. But there are these like out in the middle of nowhere countries. It's just it's really cool. You know, if you guys ever, ever have a chance, get out there and see these places. They're neat. Yeah, I need to cool. get I need to get my passport in order, boys. Yes, you do. We gotta yeah. go. Geohawks are going international. Uh, apparently so. Absolutely. <laughs> Studio One worldwide. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you so much, Brian. Anything new on the menu? You guys got any food coming up? Any new food coming up? We're uh, I'm not vegan, so I'll make that statement very clear. <laughs> but um, you know, I was listening to the NPR section uh, probably about four or five months ago, and they were talking about how veganism has increased up to three hundred percent in the last four years. Um, every night that we try to do something, I never want to have trivia night or something stupid here at the brewery because that's not what we are. We're not a bar. We're not a restaurant. We're a damn brewery. 
So having certain nights like tonight's taco night, you know, tomorrow is, you know, noodle night. So we always do some type of, you know, ramen or something cool. So we started this vegan Thursday because I have a running group that shows up about 40 to 60 people. and We all run and what have you and come back and drink beer. And mind you, runners are the I would put a runner against any day drinker. <laughs> I would put money on them. They will out drink you. Yeah. You know, A, they run and they're very fit and they right. can out drink us. Yeah. And they you know they detox or, you know, retox. Yep. But anyway, the vegan night is what we're kind of playing around with. And it's challenging for me because, you know, I do all my food here and all that. And like I said, I'm not a vegan. So when they're like, all right, vegan cheese. And A, by the way, we eat very unhealthy. I'm like, I'm sorry, you're vegan. Huh. I thought you were healthy. Vegetarians are healthy, right? You know, vegans. No, they want comfort food. I mean, they eat a whole thing of Oreos and think that's okay. <laughs> you know, so I'm laughing. I'm getting to know these people. So I spent probably three or four weeks in the kitchen trying to perfect beer cheese, right? Making a vegan, trying huh. to make it taste like cheese. Yeah. No, they don't care. It has a look. It has the consistency of cheese, and they're happy. <laughs> So we actually have a really good cheese because I worked on it forever trying to perfect it. So this has taken off on us, which is kind of nice. You know, so we have vegan night on Thursday. Um, I think it's the 8th or the uh, February. We're bringing in uh, a vegan chef that's doing cupcakes and everything for it as well. And we're going to pair that with the Imperial Stout. So, yeah, we have our hands all over the board with some fun things right now. But never thought we'd ever be playing with vegan food. But it's actually really fun and challenging, to yeah. be honest. Yeah. You know? That's awesome. The idea of vegan cheese just doesn't comprehend in hey, my head here. Don't knock it till you try it. We're going to spin around. Oh, I'll be <laughs> yeah. back on Thursday for it. Yeah. <laughs> After all the work he's put in, it's the least I could do. Uh, very cool. Well, thanks again, Brian. Thanks for allowing us to be here. Really appreciate it. No worries. Such a great atmosphere. We love being here. All right. Thank you, guys. Okay. Appreciate it. Have a good time tonight. Thank, yeah, you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. All right. With that, let's catch up with the boys. Producer Jake, what's up, man? I'm doing good, guys. I know we talked about it last week, but I'll have to talk about it a little bit again just because it's such oh a big boy. deal. The Kansas City Chiefs are in the Super Bowl <laughs> this weekend on Sunday. Patrick Mahomes leads the Army into battle. It's gonna what's be up, great. Mahomes? <laughs> so um, so it's going to be great. I mean, it's been 50 years since the last one, so I can't wait. I've already got – we're going to go to my, my dad's place. He's been waiting for forever. And I was just going to share a little story. He's got a – this is, his, this is his claim to fame. Are you getting of, choked up? It sounds like you're about to cry. <clears throat> I'm about to, yeah, this, this is really hard for me to, no, I'm just kidding. But so his cl big claim to fame is that um, he was in, uh, his, my grandma was pregnant with him. I forget, I think maybe like six or seven months or something. And she was there at the Super Bowl the last time in 1969, 1970 in really? New Orleans. So he likes to tell people that he's been uh, to the only, you know, the chief <laughs> Super Bowl. So, um, so this is going to be big. It's 50 years in the making and I'm really looking forward to it. So. That's awesome. So the the current point spread, as I understand it, is two. Two. I think it's about one and a half, two. Yeah. It was two. What's is your a, thoughts as on of that? this morning? I mean, honestly, hammer I'm like, the Chiefs. I'm thinking hammer the Chiefs. Hammer yeah. the Chiefs. Do we you just put the whole Geoholics budget? Yes. On the, the whole off. Yeah. Everything's. Yeah. We. I just we drop off all the equipment at a pawn shop. Take that cash. Let's throw remortgage it, boys. Two, yeah. <laughs> no, it's going to be a good. God, game, it's no still doubt. tempting. Jeez. Uh, you never know. Who Who is the uh, coach? for the Chiefs back in the day 50 years ago. Hank Stram? Yeah, that guy's yeah. awesome on yeah. NFL Legendary, films. Legendary, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, Jesus Christ. And, like, yeah. getting all into it. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, yeah, it's always fun to watch. That, that was my only uh, influence of the Chiefs as a child, yeah. just watching those old videos. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it. What about uh, you, Ryan? So what have you been funny. up to? Uh, I'm alive and well. We're here. 
Ryan's a little it, under the weather. It's, it's Let's been a, get it's that been out a of the slog. Way. We're gonna get there. You know, it's no coronavirus or anything like that that we know of. Well, it, it is at ASU, so it could. I, I do spend time in Tempe, but I don't. I, I hope it's not infecting me. <laughs> I'm gonna cough all over every microphone and headphone, and Jake's gonna have a fit. <laughs> so, if if I can make it through this show, I'm very excited about our guest because you know. I, I hate baseball. It's the worst game in the world, but let's get let's get to that. So what do you got going on, Kent? The, the beauty of it is you, at least you mustered enough energy to get out of bed. Oh, and I, I couldn't miss this one. Dialed, I, I did get some you, shit from the wife. You like dialed yourself up for the, for the occasion. I, I, I pulled all the Mets gear out of the closet. <laughs> well, a fraction of it. Oh, man. No, I don't have any Brewers things, but we'll get in, we'll get into that later. Exactly. Maybe exactly. I'll get something later. We'll we'll find out. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, you know, it was, it was kind of it was an interesting weekend. It really was. You know, the whole the Kobe thing. First of all, rest oh, in peace, goodness. Kobe. That was freaking awful. That um, just took over the news. As it, it should. It was amazing. Of like, an icon died. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about it. I'm like, who? That, it's got to be the, the biggest sports death in, in, in my lifetime. Yeah, the for only sure. other ones for I sure think mine. about was Dale Earnhardt. Yeah, and uh, Payne Stewart. Those are the two that came to mind. Ah, uh, the like, golfer. This one has to be the most yeah. out of the blue, shocking though. Absolutely, absolutely. It was awful. It was awful. Um, I heard something today, like him, him and his wife had a pact that they never flew flew on the same helicopter. Oh, really? Yeah, really? they kind of like had this fear of this no being kidding. a possibility. I hadn't, wasn't aware of that. That's crazy. It's kind of like the president and vice president. You can't have them together. It's like you and I. Well, it's we like, cannot, oh, yeah, I never, we, I never ride in a car with you. You and I cannot fly in the same helicopter. Especially if the lovely Megan's driving. Let's make that pact right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if we get that big time, I'll seal, fly seal anywhere with anybody. <laughs> I'm not going to turn anything down. Besides that, so the lovely Megan and I, we were, uh, we were in Sacramento. Actually, you're neck of the woods kind of uh went up there God, it was a quick trip we left saturday morning like eight o'clock flight out of phoenix got to sack jumped in a car went to lodi hit a couple wineries um really well taken care of went to michael david and one of uh one of the lovely megan's business associates, associates. uh had context so it was really cool we walk in and they got this whole thing set up you know this for kent and megan Private tasting, blah, blah, blah. So we got hooked up there. It was awesome. And then uh, they're kind of a larger production winery. But they recommended, you know, we're kind of more into the nerdy winery places. So they recommended this place called Ripkin, which is much smaller and super, super cool. Some just amazing wines that you're just not going to get anywhere else. So we came back with a bit of a haul. And then uh, we went uh, back. We stayed the night in in Sac. And then we went to Roseville and went curling at the uh, wine country uh, curling uh, club for that, but it's actually at a uh, it's actually at an ice arena up there. But really great group of people, had a lot of fun, met some cool people. You never know who you're going to meet when you're curling. I was curling on a team. I was subbing on a team with the deputy district attorney for Sacramento County. So you just never know. And this guy, he was like, afterwards, you know, we're, we're drinking beers. That's what you do after curling. And he's just, you know, he's talking about he's like, how shitty California is basically right now. <laughs> did, you get, did, like, you, did you get his card? Keep it in your pocket? I do have his card. In, ca- in case you get into trouble up there? Well, no, in case Hudson needs it. Oh, wow. Well, <laughs> between the two of us, I'll get in trouble before him. <laughs> but uh, it, was, uh, it, was, it, it was awesome. It was awesome. We had such a great time. But my goodness. The stories he was telling us about California, like people just freaking dropping trowel on the streets and shit like that. And I mean, it's a disaster. The homeless thing, I mean, bad, bad, bad. I'm not sure what the solution is, but it's not good. Uh, the, the solution is don't go to California. 
Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of fun. Let's stick here in lovely California. Arizona. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I, I go to that place, Disneyland, where you get inside the walls and it's all happy. There's yeah. no homelessness in there, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No doubt, no <laughs> doubt. At least not yet. No. Not yet. Um, with that, I do have a presentation that Uh-oh. I would like to make to uh, to Ryan. Remember that log we got in the golf course? I do. Our listeners, oh don't our do listeners this to me. will know. Who is this and why? What's this happening? Is, this I, is my I, stepfather. I'm very Bob. uncomfortable. It's my stepfather Bob. <laughs> Remember we gave him the logs. Yes. He made Bob, you something. He made oh you goodness. something. I don't like surprises. You don't, know I, ha- I you can't. I can't handle. You got to see what he made you, man. Thank you very. Oh, is this a? Oh. Open it up. Wow. Open it up. Oh, our guest wow. is going to be jealous of this. I can already feel what it is. It is. So, it is. so Jake, really bag. quick, Ryan and I were golfing in an outing, and uh, we were, <laughs> Ken, we were Ken was in, slightly under the influence. <laughs> so we stole a couple logs. Oh, it's a wonder boy. <laughs> that is awesome. Robert Redford is jealous right now. Check that out, Jake. So, that is appreciated. Oh, I, oh, I got the Mets logo on there. Don't you worry. That oh, is awesome. That is so I, awesome. I may, ha- I may have a couple of baseball uh, cases in my house, and now... There's going to be a new addition. Isn't that amazing? That, that's it's awesome. I, <laughs> I gotta, I gotta take a second. You guys can chat it up. I gotta, I gotta give Bob a hug. <laughs> Super cool, huh? That's awesome. Wow. Yeah. Wonder Boy too. Uh, yeah, that, take a look at it. Yeah, that's what he, he's like. What should I put on it? I'm Ken, like, Ken can only pick the. I'm like, put Wonder the, Boy the, on the, it. The, look at the, that. The odd logs. Oh my god. So awesome. That is excellent. <clears throat> amazing, amazing. So Bob, he's like well, he's like one of the craftiest people I've ever met. He's so creative about stuff like this. He, he got a new lathe, and we gave him the logs, and that's what he came up with. What a guy! It's awesome. What a right? guy! This is terrible radio, but I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go swing it a few times. Thank you so much, Bob. You're welcome to sit in with us if you want. Yeah, you might as well. Yeah, put the headphones on. Enjoy, enjoy the uh, shit show. You guys, I, I don't handle surprises. We've gone over this awesome. the last couple days. I don't handle surprises well. <laughs> but now I'm going to just hold this thing over my shoulder this entire uh, episode. So awesome. Bob, that's beautiful. Oh. We'll, 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 get, can, we'll post can, some pictures so everybody knows what we're ooing and eyeing about. Can you make a Kansas City Chiefs one while you're at it? <laughs> Isn't that cool? Only, uh, only if they win, though. Yeah. If, they, if they lose, yeah. nothing. Nah, nah. <laughs> then Jake just gets a... Uh, I don't, right. even, I don't even know who, who who's in the Super Bowl. I, I only know the Chiefs. That other team is. <laughs> they a joke. don't matter. They don't matter. <laughs> All right, let's get this. Uh, let's get this going. Now that we've uh, ooed and odd enough over that, that is beautiful, Bob. Oh my goodness, that's awesome. Thank you. Hey, you pull that pull that microphone in front of you, just in case you want to chime in here at any point. Yeah. yeah. All right. So uh, our safety share for this week, obviously, is uh, <laughs> don't don't let Jake baseball, put don't let Jake put Wonder Boy up there. Baseball fan awareness. Ooh. Fittingly, that's a good one. Uh, first of all, stay alert. You'd be amazed at how many people go to baseball games, purchase a seat right down the foul lines, and just don't pay attention. And there's been some really bad stories that have in, incidents that have taken place over the course of the last couple of years. I know they're like extending netting and stuff like that at most of the stadiums, which makes sense. Honestly, you know, I mean, it, it really does from a safety perspective. Locally, now it it goes beyond the dugouts. It does. It's all the way down. Yeah. Do you think it affects the price of the seating like do you think people no. feel the like they're getting cheated in any way the only difference i've noticed is like 
players used to throw the ball over the dugout oh, yeah, at, at, at the end of the inning. Now they can't. Or Good if point. they do, they have to strong arm it way up and over. Good and point. That, that's almost as dangerous. But. Small sacrifice, though, really. I mean, because it is dangerous, let's face it. Yeah. Um, think about how you're bringing to the game. You know, let's say you've got a great day of baseball plan, got some great seats. You're bringing your two-year-old son and your 70-year-old father. you got to think about these things, you know? You might want to think about maybe not getting the greatest seats, move up a little bit, because your two-year-old son's surely not going to protect himself. Your 70-year-old father surely is most likely not going to protect <laughs> himself. Uh, and then you have a couple beers, and it's just like it's it's a recipe for disaster. So uh, don't leave over, lean over rails to catch balls. Another really good piece of advice. Um, do you guys remember, was it like 2011? Do you remember that when, was it Josh Hamilton? Josh Hamilton like threw a fan a ball, and the fan grabbed it, Fell over the rail, ended up dying, yes. and he, the kid, you know the guys there with his son and everything, and I mean, it was awful. And you feel really bad for Josh Hamilton as well. You know, I mean, he's trying to, and, and like don't catch a ball, like a foul ball coming at you. Don't yep. reach out and try and grab it. You know, it's hard not to though. Again, you know, it's like it's like your natural reaction to try to catch it, just like catching a falling knife. Well, I'm just saying, you know, Steve Bartman, the guy's life was ruined. <laughs> well, geez, you got to bring that up. Of no course, fan. <laughs> yes. Hey, I will. Uh, I will defend Bartman. He did not interfere with that ball. Uh, what kind of weirdo just wears headphones to a baseball game? I don't know. Does it matter? <laughs> it does. It bothers me. That's the part that bothers me more than him trying to grab the foul ball. So here's my story. Maybe we. Maybe other. Maybe one of the other guys has a story. But I can remember, like I was like nine or ten years old, being at a White Sox game, sitting out in the left field bleachers, maybe the lower part of the second level, and just sitting there there with my parents. And all of a sudden, I hear the kid next to me screaming, "Bloody Mary! Bloody Mary! Bloody mm-hmm. Murder!" <laughs> I turn over and look. And his face is like a pancake. He got drilled in the face by a freaking ball that got hit. Blood everywhere. And I was like, oh my God. You know? <laughs> so that stuff happens. It's a real, it's a real concern. And it's something that uh, you got to think about when you go to a game. You got to. You gotta pay attention. No, absolutely, no doubt. And, and, they're, if, and they're making it safer now, so it's overall. It's inevitable that somebody's gonna get hurt at some point, but yeah. yeah, they're they're extending the netting all the way to the foul poles in some of these parks now. Yeah, that's yep. ridiculous. But, we, but and we talk about situational awareness all the time. Mm-hmm. It pertains to every aspect of your life. Going to a baseball game, situational awareness. Yeah, you got to be thinking about it, and being in a big crowd and stuff like that. So well, you know, a lot of things to think about. And people like us, we actually love the game and pay attention. Yeah. But I take Hudson there. He's six. He wants a hot dog. He wants peanuts. He wants Cracker Jacks. You get distracted with stuff. And you can yeah. see how, as much as I love the game, you get distracted. And mm-hmm. it, it could happen in a second. Yeah, absolutely. And the last word of advice is, of course, uh, bring sunglasses. Here we are in Arizona. <laughs> We're like, what, three weeks away from uh, the start of, maybe four weeks away from the start of spring training. And the weather is absolutely fantastic. Um well, not only bring sunglasses, but wear sunscreen. I was going to say sunblock, boys. Because you're going to get cooked. Absolutely. So um, with that, I mean, there's a baseball theme happening with tonight's episode. Uh, our guest tonight, we're very thankful that he was able to join us, is Jake McKinley. Jake, thanks for being here, buddy. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, Jake, why don't you tell us what you do for the uh, Milwaukee Brewers? Yeah, sure. So I'm the Director of uh, Player Development Initiatives, which is essentially um, overseeing our player development strategy uh, in, in the minor leagues as well, um, up, a, up in the big leagues for the guys that go up and down. Um, so, yeah, we're just basically trying to drive initiatives that make our players create more value at the major league level. That's the 30,000-foot the view. Sure. And um, you've, only, you've been in this position for how long? 
Uh, four weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I started out as the uh, minor league pitching coordinator, um, and then that position evolved into the coordinator of player development, which then evolved into the director of player development initiative. So it's been a busy year. Good for you, man. That's awesome. And I'm sure this is uh, this is the trajectory trajectory you were hoping for. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, it, it's been a a crazy journey, which I know we'll probably get into, but um, my ultimate goal would hopefully be to you know manage in the major leagues one day, and wow. so uh, hopefully this is a step in the right direction. That's awesome. I hear I hear Cooperstown calling <laughs> already. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. God, can you imagine? That's that's great. So you played baseball in college, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and was that at Bethany University? Yeah, Bethany University. So it's kind of funny. I always tell people. Um, My degree from Bethany University comes from a school that doesn't exist anymore. Bethany University actually closed in 2010, which is kind of wild. So I went and I got my my master's degree. So I I try to claim that as my my continuing education. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, but I played at Bethany University from 2003 to 2006. Um, I had one stop at a junior college in between. So my freshman year at Bethany, uh, not very good. Not very good. Um, <laughs> got lit up on the mound. Um, had a 206 batting average, so I went back to a junior college, got some things ironed out, okay. and then transferred back to Bethany. And unfortunately, had a had a great career those last two years, but uh, it wasn't the smoothest sailing, if you will. Was Bethany that was a scholarship? It was, yeah. Yep. So you did really well in high school. Yeah, high school was good. Um, so I'm from a small mountain Pitcher, town. by the way. Let's make let's get that out of the way, right? Two way player actually. Two way two way two yeah two way player in high school and college. So. Um, I was, I was good in high school, but I think a lot of it was because I was from a small town, small mountain town, Placerville, California, little, little town between Sacramento and Lake Tahoe. So, um, I think I got exposed a little bit when I went to college. Like if you're really, really good in a small town and then you go to a bigger area where there's just like more talent being drawn from different areas, like, you know, you, you get challenged a little bit. And I was 18 years old competing against guys that were 22, 23. And, uh, you know, I got humbled. Yeah, yeah, no question. Um, did you have something right? No, I was just going to say, what was your uh, degree in? The best kind that you can get? <laughs> oh, baby. Oh, baby. <laughs> Is it communications? Communications. Yes. <laughs> With a public uh, speaking emphasis. The, uh, I love to tell people, a public speaking emphasis was my uh, my emphasis. That comes I, in I, handy. Was that an yeah, online sure. degree or was that something you actually had to attend? I actually had to attend, yeah. Like the internet, like, okay, so it was it was around for sure, but it was still like in the days like you could pick. Uh, like you were gonna like go to Web Crawler or Yahoo or Alta Vista. Not everything Alta was Vista. Google. I know, coming I know. out of left field. Yeah, seriously, blast from the past <laughs> here. So, um, yeah, so it was just traditional in-person education. Interesting. What so? What, what, what was the uh, mascot at uh, at Bethany? We were the Bruins, the Bethany Bruins, the Bethany Bruins. And, uh, yeah, until until those last two years, we we lost a lot more games than we won. Yeah, took it on the chin quite a bit. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned your story and your path to uh, to getting to where you are right now. I mean, obviously, you're still making your way. Um, it's happened pretty quickly. I mean, you're a young guy. How old are you? Thirty five. Thirty five. All right. Um, but it's interesting. I, I was reading your bio, and when you started out in the coaching realm, is it, so for the first eight years, you literally volunteered your time. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. Yeah, like legitimately. I, I got my first paycheck um, in September of 2013. and I, So I'm born October 5th. So it was right before my uh, 29th birthday. 
so what, who were you working for then? Like, at that your... point, yeah, I yeah. had just I had just gotten the the head coaching position at Menlo College. Menlo, where's yeah. that? At? Uh, that is in Palo Alto area, oh, in yeah. California. Uh-huh. Yeah, so uh, which is kind of funny because so. I went from a volunteer to making $30,000 at Menlo College as the head baseball coach. In 2013. In 2013. So it was like, at the time, honestly, I remember my first paycheck was like for $997. I was like, oh my God, I'm rich. You know, like this is a lot of money. Um, So yeah, but like legitimately, I I didn't get a paycheck for the first eight years I coached. How did you survive? Um, a lot of creativity, uh, yeah. a lot of, a lot of like private lessons. I'd like run okay. little clinics. Um, okay. But you know, to be honest with you, like, there were, there were moments like where I, I didn't have a place to live, you know, so I would like secretly sleep in my office and looking back on it now, it's kind of like funny and scary because yeah. it, it's, uh, a, it's a violation of a fire code to, to like live in your office. And, I, and so the cleaning lady would come in at six in the morning and I would have to be up and working to like pretend like, you know, I was working. And, and, and I think a lot of people would be like, oh my God, like the baseball coach, like God, he gets in here early and he really <laughs> works hard. I was like, well, the baseball coach never left. Um, so... Yeah, so it was a lot of like living in my office, like sleeping in the locker room. Um, yeah, man, it, it was tough. Like my twenties were, were not your traditional twenties, where you go from, you know, having a master's degree to getting a job and like working your way up. It was, you know, I had this like this dream where I would coach baseball for a living, and uh, it, it just didn't happen very fast. I would say I was more of like a late bloomer. I was honestly probably a late bloomer as a player too. Um, yeah. And so there, there were times, obviously, like in my mid to even late 20s, where it was just like, you know, what those are tough conversations to have with your friends and your family. Like, you know, what are you, what are you doing with your life? Yeah. Uh, it's like, I'm a volunteer baseball coach. <laughs> uh, but fortunately, it's paid off in recent years. Absolutely. I, I almost compare it to being like a uh, an aspiring musician. Sure. Right. You know, mm-hmm. like you want to be a rock star. Yeah. And you start out playing in these really small garage bands or whatever and you got to pay your dues and you know work your way up to i guess notoriety or popularity or however you want to you know coin that but it's kind of the same thing you know like these 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 rock bands are just starting out they got nothing they're relying on like selling their merchandise and stuff you know yeah for sure you know it's funny you say that i i remember telling people uh when i was in my 20s like i'm gonna compare this to being a doctor which it's like okay I know a doctor does like so much more for humanity than a baseball coach, um, but depends on who you ask. Yeah, it depends on who you ask, to right? Me, because baseball coaches are more important than doctors. <laughs> but that's I, just me. I, I respect <laughs> that opinion. Um, but okay, so it's like as a doctor, you go to a lot of school, and then you intern. You make no money. You go into horrendous debt, and then like through medical school, you you accumulate a lot of this debt. But then when you come out on the other side of it, like you're impacting people, you're making people better, um, and, and it's a lucrative career. And, and I compared a lot, you know, I compared baseball a lot to that in the sense that it's like, I, I think as a coach, you know, you can have all the tactical knowledge in the world and you can know a lot about the game. But the reality is like it, this profession is about impacting people, impacting people's lives, whether it's your players or the coaches you're fortunate enough to work with. So I felt that it, it was the same, and I, at least that's how I justified it to sure. people around me. Is like, you know, the the money piece will work itself out in yeah. the end, 
but in the meantime like this is what i want to do and it, there's going to be some speed bumps along the way yeah. so you know yeah. very fortunate to be here today for sure well and you, i mean you're obviously a humble individual and that takes you so far in life as it you know just in general and you're willing to make those sacrifices to get to where you want to be i mean i'm assuming you're not where you want to be quite yet obviously sure. but you've made the sacrifices you've jesus you've worked for eight years volunteered your time being a coach and all these different um levels or whatever and uh it's paying off, just like you said. You know, kudos to you. How was it like? So you were, you were a, a head coach, and then you know, let's say you, you know you get a position with the Brewers, and it's more in a supportive role. Mm-hmm. How does that transition take place? You know, it was funny when, when I transitioned. That was one of the questions that actually um, people asked me in the interview with the Brewers. Like, hey, you've been a head coach for quite a while, and you're going to go into a position where you're not. Like, how do you feel about that? And I was like, sign me up, honestly, because when you're when you're the head coach or the manager. Um, everything kind of falls back on you, right? Like, and and that creates a lot of challenges because there's so many moving pieces to a baseball Mm -hmm. team. And so I I was actually ready to get more granular with my approach and coaching. Like, let me focus on something very specific and just support the greater good. Obviously, I want to manage at that level. But in the meantime, like, I think expertise is so important. Um, So I felt like doing this would make me less of a generalist and more of an expert in a certain area. So initially, I was just doing pitching stuff, Um, just working with pitchers, just working with our pitching coaches. And then obviously, uh, it took about a year. And now I'm in more of a global role, which is which is really good. Um, But I think I think to be a great to be like a great head coach or a great leader, a great manager, you have to like get in the weeds a little bit. Um, as an assistant or in a supportive role because when you get to that management role like I think you have a greater appreciation for the people that like sacrifice so much time and so much effort uh, for the greater good of your organization so um, the transition has been easy for sure I do miss like the intimate environment of college baseball like you have 25 to 35 players that you have to oversee Um, it is a little bit more granular but in the sense of like where I'm at right now, it's it's just really cool to support a major league organization any way I can. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, just okay. So you're at this point now. Take us way back. How did your love of baseball start? So it's funny. So my my first ever t-ball practice, um, I'll never forget. They put me at first base, which like in t-ball, like if you think about the competitive advantage in t-ball, if you have a first baseman that can just like catch the ball. Exactly. <laughs> You're, you're, you're miles ahead, man. Right? <laughs> so, um, so they put me at first base, and and I swear to God, the first throw that was ever made my way at first base, like I, I whiffed it completely, it goes over my glove, hits me in the face. So I fall on the ground. Um, you know, as a like six year old kid, you're not you're not trying to cry in front of your teammates. <laughs> We're gonna uh, be tough. So like, yeah, I got up and I continued to play first base, and then I went home that night, and I had a I had a big old black eye. And so my first ever baseball picture in T-ball is like just with a shiner <laughs> under my right eye. Um, and I remember like my dad and, you know, my brothers, they were, they were like so pumped that like I, I stood up and I, and I kept playing through this black eye. And I don't know, like there was just this thing, like it just felt kind of badass uh, to, to wear one in the face and like keep playing. And I don't know, I, I, I think that's what like made me fall in love with it. And then ultimately it became a way to connect like with my dad. My dad was a big Mets fan growing up. Um, smart still, man. Yeah, smart man, right? Still remains a Mets fan today. We're working on it. Um, <laughs> but but uh, it was a great way for him and I to connect. 
And then, you know, it led me to so many like friendships and relationships growing up. So, um, you know, it, it became so much more about like who can touch home plate the most, but more so about like the interpersonal relationships it, it created. So you start out with T-ball. Yeah. Gotcha. I got that coming up here soon, boys. <laughs> yes, you do. You I got the do. little guy it's in, in April. It starts. So oh. let me bring you back to the, this is going to be the Wayback Machine, 1975, maybe we'll call it. We weren't born yet. Okay. 1975 <laughs> in my life. Uh, we sinned in Little League in Chicago, right? So every year before Little League started, all the kids that were in the Little League would come to one particular field. There's probably 40, 50 kids, I don't know, maybe 60 standing around, right? And Dusty was like the director of the Little League, right? And Dusty was this older guy. Well, he was, I say he was older then. He was probably like 35. And just a big guy, big, big beer gut, you know? And he would... <laughs> He would give everybody the, a pep talk about why it's so great to be there and baseball's the best sport ever and we're going to have the best friends and have the best time and everything. And all of a sudden, Dusty takes off his shirt. Oh, boy. <laughs> so Dusty's not? got this big beer gut, right? <laughs> and this guy, here's what he does. <laughs> Glenn Abramowski was there. Oh, and Dusty takes off his shirt and he goes... He goes sprinting around the bases, right? First base, second base. This guy can hardly run. He's got this big beard. Got third base. He's coming to home. What does he do? He dives into home plate. <laughs> yes. Dives into home plate. He Dusty. gets up, and his gut is like all <laughs> ratty, and you know, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, "That's the commitment we need from you guys." You know, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> nothing uh, makes you awesome. fall in love with the game or something just, like that. Now, now I see why I just didn't make it as a professional baseball player. Yeah, I yeah. didn't have a Dusty <laughs> to yeah. encourage. All my, all my buddies, I mean, we all played baseball throughout high, you know, Little League and high school and everything, and uh, all of us know Dusty just because oh. of that. It was such a great story. I'm sure Dusty's long gone now, but and no, no, man, no. oh, man. He, now that guy's in the running for the uh, Astros management. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the Mets? No, no, no. They got they got Rojas. We're all set. We're done. We're, we're good. Hilarious. I say That's we because, you know, I'm part of the team. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. As much as Jake is on the Chiefs, I, I am uh, on the Mets. <laughs> the director exactly. of uh, player morale. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Yeah. I, am, I am the Arizona representative of biggest fan for the Mets. I, I, <laughs> I gladly take that yes. title. I will confirm. Yes. Can, can confirm. Can Thank confirm. You. Can confirm. <laughs> um, so, Jake... Um, the, the, who, who, like, who are the players? Like, was, are you working with a group of players right now specifically, or is it a group of coaches? Is it a combination of the two? Yeah, I would say it's it's more of a hybrid role. Um, it, that and that's what's been interesting for me uh, because I would say like in the director role, like so. Here, here's some context. So college baseball, you average four coaches per coaching staff, right? So it's like four coaches for you know twenty five to thirty five players. Major league baseball, the Brewers, we have three hundred players in our organization 300 wow. so we have like 45 to 55 coaches roughly um so for me like the lower hanging fruit is actually more so coaching the coaches um than it is coaching the players because that just like gets your messaging out cleaner if you will but i heard something recently that's like so powerful and it was just because you're a good player doesn't mean you're going to be a good coach <clears throat> which is great for me because i wasn't that good of a player um <laughs> convenient yes but then i heard this is just because you're a good coach doesn't mean that you know how to coach coaches right like it doesn't mean that you sure. know how to lead leaders and i was like god that's something like that really like smacked me upside the head so i've actually channeled a lot of my attention lately onto um leading leaders which is really really tricky it's that's really really murky <clears throat> yeah. so 
Um, that's what that's a lot of what I do is, is leading our coaches. So as far as leadership goes, I mean, you. I mean, this is something I think about often. As a matter of fact, um, being a leader, a true leader, is that something that you're born with? Is it something that can be learned? Um, is it inherent? I mean, what what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I have my thoughts, but I'm curious. You know, you being in the role that you're in, what you think? Yeah, I, you know what I. I think, again, probably a hybrid answer to that question. I, I think there's probably some like genetic traits that you would have that would help you. But I, I do think the leadership skills can be developed because I look at myself as like a 21-year-old coach and I'm like, what a dumpster fire. I, I was terrible. You know, I probably um, hurt more players than I helped. And then when I first became a head coach, um, I was such like a, an iron fist leader um, that that approach actually probably inhibited my ability to to connect with my players. Um, so I think leadership in general is is a very learned trait. But yeah, I guess some genetic things might get your foot in the door. But at the end of the day, like I think you can really really progress as a leader if you want to. It just it's like any other skill. Like you gotta you gotta put the effort into to learning and putting that that knowledge into application. Um, but yeah, man, I, I God, I look back at my early years as a coach. I'm like, oh, what was I doing? It's terrible. Would, would you say that, uh, like, failure builds you – I mean, it probably – I mean, it, it builds a certain character, no doubt, but it probably also helps you as a leader. you got to fail. So much. Yeah, like, <laughs> I think failure is so critical. I actually tweeted this out the other day, and it got, like, a ton of traction. But when I was a freshman in college, um, I had a history professor, and one of his rules was, like, when you write your and your, right, like – y-o-u-r and then y-o-u apostrophe r-e he says if you mess that up on a paper or an exam i will not grade it any further i will fail you like that was the rule so like learn the difference between these two things i'm not making this up on the final paper i wrote the wrong your (laughs) and i got it back and it was like on the first paragraph fail right and and i remember at the time thinking like this is this is terrible like this is bs because this is a history class but today I look back on it and I'm like, I'm really cognizant of your and your there, there and there. Yeah. Right. And it's so like that failure is not only important, but I think like it's important to have a leader or a teacher that will hold you accountable in the moments of those failures. Yeah. So you don't repeat them. Sure. Um, so I think back on that. I'm like, God, what a what a powerful moment. Like I was so pissed off as a, you know, 18 year old kid. Like, I can't believe a history teacher failed me for that. But now I'm like, I don't miss that one, and I catch it when people do it right. wrong. Yeah, so exactly. stiff lessons are stiff lessons. You know they stick. Yeah. Stiff punishments will, will stick. Yeah. Just don't marry an English teacher. Yeah. You, right. you won't you won't make those mistakes anymore. <laughs> don't be hyperbolic. Oh my goodness, you had to drop it. <laughs> so I got your your resume, your 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 bio here. It's quite impressive. Um, with Menlo College, mm-hmm. you guys were successful there. Yeah, you were coach of the year for California. Um, how big is a, a, of a school is Menlo and, and, and how, how much did that help you in your trajectory of your career? Uh, Menlo was so important for me. So one, one thing, like I think right now in the baseball industry, Menlo is viewed as like a, you know, kind of a big time program, but here's, here's some interesting facts about Menlo at Menlo. Uh, we had two majors, all right, business and psychology. Okay. So like that automatically narrowed our funnel to which we could recruit. Menlo, uh, when I was there, was $60,000 a year. It was in the most expensive zip code in the country, and we had 700 students. Mm. So for us to be successful, um, 
boy, we had a lot of constraints on the front end that we had to get over. Um, but that being said, it, it, it did help me a ton as a coach because like from a resource perspective, we did not have a lot. And there were times as a coach where I really got frustrated with that. Like, you know, like I, I'm recruiting these players, they're paying a lot of money to be here, and I feel like we're shortchanging them on what we're providing. But then I eventually flipped that on like, okay, what do we have? Like, what do we have that's good? And how can we use it to create competitive advantages for ourselves, as opposed to just complaining about what we don't have? And I think that was a big moment for our program because it really shifted us into the sense of like, we don't have much, but what we have, we're going to use better than our opponents. And we started, we started winning. We started getting better players. And in uh, like recruiting decisions became a little bit easier where it was like, okay, if a guy was an English major, we could just like eliminate that because it just wasn't a fit. Um, so to build like culture, it was important. Now I think about me as a coach, um, like the first week I got there, the field was a disaster. There was like potholes in the outfield. Um, the edges weren't smooth. Like there, there was so much work to be done. And it was like, you can complain about how bad your field is, or you can like learn how to take care of grass and like you can learn how to level a baseball field and you can learn how to edge a baseball field. And I learned all this stuff from like my best coach, Google. Um, and I started putting this stuff into application and, you know, after four years is like, you look outside the field and you're like, Oh my God, this, this place is beautiful. Uh, but it was through so much like trial and error. Um, I remember we had like a, we had a lawnmower. So I had a riding motor that I would stripe the outfield with. So, you know, those stripes you see on a baseball field, I had to learn to do that. Um, and then like a hand mower for the infield, I had to learn to do that, but then the blades would get caught a lot. So I'd have to like stick a screwdriver in there to like uncork them. And I look back at it now, like as, uh, you know, coaching major league baseball, um, I look back on it now and I'm like, I have so much admiration for those days because that's what made us good. Like we had good players, but we were so good at maximizing what we had. And I think a lot of times people get caught up in like, we don't have this, so we can't be good. Or we don't have this. And it's like, no, like take an inventory of what's good already. Be excellent with that. And then the other stuff will start to trickle in. And fortunately, the wind started to trickle in. Wow. Can you talk a little bit about like your coaching style when you were there? Like, would you call yourself like a player's coach or how would you like refer to that? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think one of my like superpowers is the fact that I was like just an okay player. I wasn't that good of a player. And one of the things I realized uh, pretty early in my coaching career is like baseball is a tremendously difficult game to play. There's a lot of like special talents that are required to play. Like you've got to have speed, you've got to have power, you've got to have accuracy. Um, you have to have adaptability. Like these are things that are really, really tough. And so I think I was just like more sensitive to that. Um, it, it, when we would train players, like when failure would happen, uh, I, I think I just had an easier time than most of my peers in coaching, um, dealing with that. Like, you know, I, I'd say this a lot to our coaches, but it's a lot like teaching a kid to ride a bicycle. For those of you that have kids, like you put the kid on the bike and you hold the seat, right? So you keep them balanced for a little bit, but eventually as the parent, like, you know, that they're going to fall. Right. And then when they fall, like what's your conversation with the kid is like, hey, what was your what was your pressure like on the handlebars? What was your posture like? Probably not. You dust them off. You get them back up on the bike and you let them go right again. And then you know that they're going to probably fall again. But over time, they become masters of being on the bicycle. And then eventually, like they're doing wheelies they're going down hills they're ripping around turns. And even when they're an expert, they're going to fall down. And then at that point, you clean them off, you get them back up. And I think a lot of times baseball coaching or any sports coaching is just like, I see a problem. I want to diagnose it. I want to prescribe you stuff. And it's like, I, I think I was 
at a competitive advantage because of my playing career that like I didn't want to do that. It was just like, no, man, like you failed. It's okay. I love you still. Let's get you back out there. Do the best you can. And I think over time, if you care about this, if you're passionate about this, you'll figure it out. Um, and I and I'm blessed for that because a lot of players came to play for me that were really, really good because I think they knew I wasn't going to like mess with them. Like I wasn't going to mess with their mechanics. I wasn't going to mess with their mindset. Um, we were an advocate for the player and, and to go let them play. So to answer your question, like, was I a player's coach? I would hope that my players would describe me as that. I took a lot of pride in that, but more so of a player's coach because I think I was good at like doing less and just like letting the players go treat the field like it was their playground. And you know how it was like in, in school, like when you, when you're on the playground, you have the yard duty that's like watching your every move. Like you can't go play. You can't go learn stuff. Like, oh man, go out there and play. And if you fail, like awesome, give it another try. Don't you think that, you know, a lot of kids that are really good, phenomenal athletes, that there's some unrealistic expectations put on them. So as a result, there's more failure and it's not fair. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, mean, I, I don't know. Baseball is such a failure sport. You bat, you bat 300, right. you're amazing. Exactly. You're still failing yeah. 70% of the time. Yep. And I, as, as a father with a six-year-old, if right. you can add to this in any way, I try and tell them all the time. I'm like, this is a game where you're going to fail more yeah. than you're not. So I, I guess as a coach, how do you get through that through the players' heads where they're comfortable with it? Yeah, comfortable such, with failure. Yeah, exactly. Right? It's such, yeah, it's such a that's such a like good topic because so in those years when I was making no money, that that's how I was surviving as I was coaching you know, like travel ball teams, like youth, you know, like ten through thirteen year old kids, like playing on these tournament teams. And you go to these tournaments and you just see like these dads like putting like so much pressure on on their kids, and you see these environments like dad's like fighting and i mean just like what what in the world are we doing you know so it's like it's kind of funny to me i guess in the leadership role it's like you tell these kids like hey failure is great you know it's good if you fail but then when the failure happens and dad's freaking out like well if you're not the role model for being supportive of that environment then how do you expect the kid to be able to put that into application um so I think it's like super, super important, like dad education, the little league level, <laughs> I think is, is critical where it's like, hey, man, like, do you understand that your kid is going to take a round object? He's going to try to hit a round ball moving on two planes through space and he's going to try to hit it square. Like, let's talk about how difficult that is. And like, hey, if, if little Johnny isn't really good today, you need to be OK with it as the dad. It's all good. Like, just encourage him to get it back out there tomorrow and human beings are incredible at like self-organizing and figuring things out like that's why like i think if we had walking coaches we would all like walk with our hands over our head you know (laughs) what i mean like we develop our own style of movement and and sometimes the biggest things that will like be a constraint for a baseball player is a coach like over coaching them um so our, our philosophy honestly with the brewers is just to like just do less you know um go let them fail and if they fail like just just be their advocate like be you know, not necessarily be their friend, but like be friendly with them mm-hmm. and encourage them to just like get back up on that proverbial bike and ride again. How does it work? So like you have these phenomenal baseball players, you know, wherever they come from, where, where, where do most of the players come from these days? First of all, cause you look at how many, how many players in the MLB are from the United States? How many are from Central America? How many are from Asia now? Any idea what the percentages are? Yeah, I, well, at least in our system, I know about forty percent of our players are from Latin America, so the Dominican Republic, yeah. Venezuela. Um, 
and then obviously, you know, we, we do have some players from Asia um, and then America, and then there's some other, um, you know, countries that are sprinkled into that population. But I will tell you this, like going down to the Dominican Republic for the Brewers, because we have a couple minor league teams down there. One of the things that, that I thought when I went there is like these players, they're like, they're so raw. Um, and, and you see just so many of the best major league baseball players are from like the Dominican Republic. And if you look on the fields or if you look at the fields that they play on, like they're, they're terrible, like just patchy grass. There's like goats in the outfield and these kids can play at such a high level. But I think a lot of that is because again, it's just like, they just go have fun. They just go play and they just get these reps in without getting like overcoached. So it's like, Hey, let's be sure like we don't Americanize our Latin players and almost maybe like put a little bit of Latin flavor in, into our American players. And, I, and I've actually said that before I got into pro baseball is like, hey, if the player is athletic and they're really, really passionate about this, like let's just be an engineer of an environment as opposed to just constantly injecting information throughout their training. So yeah. and over the course of a year, obviously baseball season is baseball season. When when you guys hit the off season, what's that look like for your schedule? Yeah, so the off season's actually been pretty busy. Um, you know, so we we just opened a brand new facility uh, in Maryvale. So we we had the old facility, tore it down, opened this just state of the art facility. It's beautiful. I encourage anybody in Phoenix to get out there and watch a game in spring training. Um, and, and because we have this facility, a lot of our players gravitate to that in their offseason. They want to spend their offseason uh, in Arizona and, and train with us. So we've had anywhere from like 60 to 80 players on a pretty pretty regular basis there training with us, whether it's like a rehab player or just like a traditional major league player and, any, and anything in between. Um so my off season has been busy. Uh, it's been busy, and obviously, like with the with the role change for myself, um, it's been busy trying to uh, I just strategize for spring training, strategize for the upcoming season in relationship to like what is going to give us a, a competitive advantage as a major league baseball team. And you personally live here in Phoenix. I won't give away your address or anything <laughs> like that, but uh, you you don't spend the uh, summers in Milwaukee or anything or like in that. The, the Dominican. <laughs> yeah, well, I do spend some time there. So, uh, yeah, so I live in Phoenix. I uh, live in Uptown. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, Uptown Phoenix, and then, um, you know, we have spring training. And then once the season starts, I'll rove anywhere from, you know, the major league team uh, to the Dominican and all of our minor league affiliates hmm. and just kind of, like, go in. Uh, more than anything, like, check on our coaches, make sure they're doing okay. Um, check on our players, make sure they're doing okay. And just make sure that our general, like, strategies are um are being aligned, driven I guess. Yeah. yeah yeah aligned cohesion's a big deal it's really really tricky because like i said we have like 300 players we have all these oh coaches yeah. um so so it doesn't matter like how good your strategy is if everyone's not like kind of pulling the same direction you're going to run into trouble so a lot of those visits are are driven by hey let's make sure like we're kind of speaking a common language um let's be sure that we're all on the same page here yeah really interesting now are you uh personal friends with the old pat murphy Pat Murphy. Yeah. He, he's an old ASU man. He sure he, is. He was the coach for years over there when I was there. You know what's funny? Last spring training, um, it was my first It was my first uh, experience in pro baseball, right? And, and I knew who Pat Murphy was. I'm a college baseball coach. So he was one of the people I was like most intimidated to meet. <laughs> and uh, when I remember this, I was walking out to my car, and I, I'd parked in, in – 
in like the players' parking lot, and I saw Pat Murphy there, and uh, and I was just like, man, that, like that's Pat Murphy, you know? Like mm-hmm. this is like one of the greatest college baseball coaches that has ever lived. Um, and so I was super intimidated to meet him. I went up and I introduced myself. He couldn't have been friendlier to me. And actually, the next day, he he made the effort to come and, and talk to me about the transition from college baseball to pro baseball. And he was a super, super advocate uh, for me to like just help me learn the ropes, if mm-hmm. you will. So I have nothing but just great things to say about that guy. Like He couldn't have gone more out of his way or been more like gracious to me in the transition. Well, as an ASU Sun Devil, I have to say I love the guy as well. Mm, <laughs> he did some great things here. Guy. Super funny guy, too. He's well, awesome. Well, I'm, I'm sure most of that we can't really talk about here. <laughs> 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 but uh, uh, keeping with the Phoenix connection, you, the, the head baseball coach is Craig Council, mm-hmm. who is a legend around here. Sure. Straight out of Notre Dame. And, mm-hmm. yeah, he was a part of that 2001 team out here. Yeah. Um, do you guys – I don't know how much time you spend with him or mm-hmm. anything like that, but do you see people gravitating to him out here? You know is, what? Is he a legend? Is he as, as big as Gonzo? <laughs> you know what's funny? Uh, so um, I, I've had some interaction with Craig for sure, and the first time I ever interacted with Craig, I woke up one morning in California because the time zone difference, right? Right before I went to spring training, and, and I had this like weird number on my phone. I, I look at it, and it's like, hey, Jake, it's Craig Council. Uh, <laughs> he was like... Oh, that happens all yeah, the time. Right. Like, hey, Jake, it's Craig Council. Would like to pick your brain on a couple things later. Could you give me a call? And so I was with a buddy. I was like, you are not going to oh believe who just texted me. <laughs> and so I was like, it's Craig Council. So anyways, I called, I called Craig that day. Um super like just awesome awesome human being just a great dude but the thing about him that i love like just from a leadership perspective is he's not only friendly he's not only nice but like he'll challenge you at the same time like he he is the manager for the milwaukee brewers so he wants to i think he wants to be sure obviously that like anything that gets said to players any initiatives that are driven, like he wants them to be the best, mm-hmm. you know? And so even if you lay something out that you're very confident in, like he'll, he'll poke holes in it in a good way, you know, like he's always going to make you make sure that like your systems are comprehensive and put his players in the best position to be successful. So ever since I've come to the Brewers, like Craig has been um, awesome. Like when I went up to the major leagues last year for a little bit, um, he went out of his way to make sure, like, I felt welcome, brought me into the coach's conference room. Um, just, I can't, I can't say a good, uh, enough good things about him, but also just from a leadership perspective, like, he's going to challenge you to become a better leader. Um, I think that if you look at, like, major league rosters and, like, value gain from rosters, like, Craig Council is the best manager in baseball. I believe that. On a personal note, can you ask him how the hell he batted like that? <laughs> that stance was ridiculous. Do you remember that? Yes, oh my I goodness! Yeah. It, like, how yeah. is that possible? Yeah. You were yeah. a two-way player. So. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's a conversation I probably will avoid with Craig. Um, uh, he was really, really good, and that's good enough. You for just me. throw my name out there. <laughs> okay. Throw me under the bus. Okay. I'll take it. <laughs> one of the one of the, like I, I guess it's like a leadership meme or something like that that I saw that will always resonate with me is that. If you treat the say the groundskeeper yeah. the same way that you treat the head coach or whatever, mm-hmm. that's everything you need to know about a person's character as far as leadership goes. Yeah, yeah, God, I, 
I couldn't agree more. Um, I know I keep telling stories. My first day in spring training, I swear to God, I was walking along, like we call it our agility field. It's just like those little half fields you see at spring training. And our groundskeeper, actually, he put a sign in the field and it said, frost delay, please stay off field. Now, earlier that day, Craig Council had asked me to set up for pitcher's fielding practice. So I'm walking out there. I've got all this stuff in my hands, and I see this sign that says, Frost LA, don't step on the field. And I'm like, ah, God, I'm at a crossroads here. Like, do I step on the field? Do I set this up for the major league team, or do I honor the groundskeeper, right? Yeah. And so I took one step onto the grass, and the groundskeeper, like, saw me from a distance. And he came over, and he blew me up. Like, (laughs) blew me up. Um, So later that day, I was like, God, like, I'm so embarrassed. I'm probably going to get fired. And the day transpired, and I was like, that was, like, super inappropriate. Like, that guy shouldn't have talked to me like that. But then a few days later, I was like, you know what? Like, this is this is a major league baseball team. Um, if we're going to be, like, world-class as an organization, we have to have world-class all the way through the organization, whether that's the, the grounds crew, the coaching, the players. It doesn't really matter. There's a certain level of expectations that exist, and that guy set parameters for his field, like – these major leaguers deserve the best fields. He set parameters, and I violated it. So I absolutely deserved what I got. Um, and ever since then, it's, it's, it's really made me appreciate, like, every, every person that touches an organization is so, like, critical to yeah. the success of the organization. Um, so, like, when leaders... When, when leaders are in this position where they, like, can impact, like, the greater good, the groundskeeper like matters matters so much and like if it's a non-baseball organization like the janitor matters so much um and i think it's imperative that like everybody is made to feel uh, important because you know let's let's, exactly let's face it like their 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 job like makes the makes the world go around in that organization everybody's got a role no doubt no doubt if they take their role as seriously as you you take your role that's exactly what you're hoping for you know no doubt Mm -hmm. because in this in this role like you don't have to worry about that like i just know like in our our field our grounds crew guy is amazing but i know when i go to the when i go to the field like we're gonna have pristine fields to play on i I guarantee it every day like because the guy crushes it those are the best pieces of grass in the entire Mm -hmm. world those Mm -hmm. baseball fields Mm -hmm. oh get me excited let's go baseball season come on oh my god so I'm, i'm just curious about this so we talked about leadership a little bit and whether or not it can be learned or taught or whatever what about work ethic where does that fit in? Yeah, good question. So when I when I got into coaching, it's kind of funny. I got in because um, I needed a job. So I played two years professionally. So in between those two seasons, like I I needed work. My salary as a major or as a professional baseball player, not a major league baseball player, but as a professional baseball player, was um, seven hundred dollars a month. So I, I had to do something to supplement my income when I first got into to coaching, um, and so. I remember like my, my first week there, there was like recruiting, there was like field work, there was all this stuff that we had to do. And like these days were turning into like 14, 15 hours. Um, and I remember thinking like, I, I didn't think this was going to be like coaching baseball. I thought you yeah, like, you just showed up to practice and you helped your players get better. And then you left and it's, it's so much different. There's so much more that goes into developing a baseball team than I think that the, the naked eye meets. Um, so to your question of like, can it be developed or do you just have it? Um, I I would say it can be developed, but like the foundation, like what gets your foot in the door is passion 
yeah. about what you're doing. Yeah. Like you have to love what you're doing. And then if you love what you're doing, I don't really think it feels like work. And those days go by like that. And it's trippy. Like when I go into work, I usually get there about 7.30. Um, and when I leave, it feels like the day was just blew by. And I, I said to my girlfriend the other day, I was like, life is just like flying by. It's tripping me out. I feel like I was just, you know, 25 a minute ago. Um, but it's because I get to do something I love. So to that point, like the work ethic piece, and that's what I tell young coaches is like gravitate towards something that you really, really love and become world class at it. Um, and that will drive the work ethic. But I think if you try to instill work ethic into something that you don't love, I think that's uh, that's square that's, peg that's, round yeah, hole. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's a totally recipe agree. for disaster. Totally agree. What yeah. about motivation and drive? Yeah, I, I, inherent I, or taught? I, I I think I think pretty pretty similar. Um, now to that point, like I've seen some baseball players who are uniquely talented that don't have a lot of motivation and a lot of drive. But when you when you take the time to get to know those guys. I think you learn like they don't really like baseball. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there, there, there are some guys I think that are really, really, really talented baseball players that aren't in love with the game. And so at that point, like you just kind of hope that they're really, really good, and then that their skill set can like transfer into wins. Um, but I think it's a it, it's a lot similar, I guess, to what I was just talking about. Like if it's something that you love, I think the motivation piece comes easier because again if you're trying to motivate yourself for something that you're like not really really in love with it's tough is it doable i i guess um you know but when, when i was a younger coach like you hear about these these college coaches like i'm in the office by like 4 a.m every day uh you know and i st- i work like 14 15 hours a day and I, I think there's some of that where i would do that but some of that is like ah that's not really what I do, um, but I, yeah, but I, I, I think it's easier to, to make those like 10, 12 hour days count because like, it's easy to stay focused because, you know, I love what I'm doing. And so it's easy to stay motivated. Yeah. Yeah. No. I, um, uh, so I think about, I think, I think about a lot of different things, <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, as far as like professional athletes go, um, the example that comes to mind right now, just because I know it's screwed up a lot of fantasy football teams, is David Johnson. Oh, my goodness. Okay, David Johnson, right, mm-hmm. has a, a phenomenal year or two, gets paid a monster paycheck, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden he's nowhere near the David Johnson he was the prior two years. It's not because he's hurt. It's because it's like – What's he, the motivation at this point? The paycheck's going to come no matter what. Right. Right, and you know he's got this big payday for now, like three, four years, whatever, and he holds the professional organization hostage. I'm sure there's examples in baseball that mm-hmm. reflect the exact same thing, but you can't predict that. Yeah, you know, you know what's funny? Like that, that's a good example. So I don't know if you guys are readers. There's a book called um, The Infinite Game. It's by Simon Sinek. Mm. You ever heard of it? Oh, I love Simon. Yeah, yeah, he's great. I mean, I'm not familiar with the book, but I, I okay. see his YouTube videos. He's awesome. So, so basically this book is on the theory of like organizations, like ranking against other organizations, right? So give you some background. So he went to a, um, like a, an education summit from Microsoft and he said that 70% of the speakers, their content was on how we're going to catch Apple, how we're going to beat Apple. And then he went to an Apple summit two weeks later and a hundred percent of the speakers content was about how we're going to make life better for human beings, how we're going to make educators more empowered. 
right? So his theory, and I, and I totally agree with this, is that life and organizational advancement is an infinite game. Like you, you never reach this threshold, right? So I think a lot of athletes live in this world where it's like, if I just get this contract, if I just win this game, I will be happy. And if you think about people in regular life, if I just reach this weight goal, if I just accomplish this thing, I'll be happy. But what we found is like, when when like a a coach wins a Super Bowl or a World Series, a lot of times the aftermath is actually depression. Because it's like I reached this this thing in my life, and now I'm like, wow, we celebrated, we champagne showered, but the next day, mm-hmm. everybody just went back to their regular it's life. It's almost like the goalpost shift, right? You hit your goal, it's there, and then now they just move another 15 yards, and you're going to get there. It's gonna, there's always going to be something else there, and then yes. it's going to keep shifting every time. Chasing exactly. the dragon, boys. And so I think that the, the consistency with like really good organizations, really good coaches, really good athletes is like, look, like... You never have it figured out. I read a book by Bill Walsh a few years ago. So good. And it's like, hey, if you're in this profession and you feel totally mangled, you feel like you don't have anything figured out and you're hanging by a thread, congratulations. You are right where you need to be. Um, and, and so when I think of a guy like what you just brought up, it's like, no, like winning this game does not bring you fulfillment. Winning this championship does not bring you fulfillment. You never have it. Like you never have it figured out. It's a it's an infinite game, mm-hmm. and I think this is where like a lot of athletes and a lot of coaches get into trouble. It's like they're just like they're living their life to win this final game. But the reality is like most people don't win the final game, right? Let's face it. Like if you're a Hall of Fame coach, you might win three or four championships. But let's talk about the 36 years that you didn't get it. Did you have an opportunity to impact your players and make them better human beings and prepare them for life after sports? That's what I think brings you fulfillment, not necessarily that win. Um, So we really encourage our people, and I think just people in general, like you're playing an infinite game, and we will never have it figured out. You know, I look at the the Patriots, honestly. You know, I mean, how they are able to be motivated year after year after year after having such incredible success. Belichick cracks the whip on them, boys. I mean, Belichick, I mean, whether you Get love the guy or you it. hate him, the guy Do is your an job. absolute genius. <laughs> yeah, it really absolutely. is. You yeah. know, that organization is just so finely tuned. But the guy never looks happy. He's well, never satisfied. The, it, it's it's, it's an infinite game. Yeah, it's it, an infinite game, That's all there is right. to it. Yep. There's a great video. If you guys Google uh, Belichick, uh, they were playing the Jaguars like five years ago, and they were up like, 47 to nothing. It's just ridiculous. Blowout. Fourth quarter. And the Jags went down and, like, scored a touchdown. There's a video of, like, some Patriots players, and they're dancing before mm-hmm. the play, right? And they, they give up this touchdown. And Belichick, like, blows them up on the sideline. He's just like, <laughs> you can dance after the game. But, like, <laughs> we basically just, like, let them score seven points because we weren't focused. You know what I mean? And I'm like, wow, that is a championship coach. Like, yep. whether they're good or whether they're bad, like he expects a certain level of excellence, and when it's not achieved, like I don't care if it's forty-seven to nothing. I don't care if we're down forty-seven to nothing. There is a certain level of excellence and focus that we expect of our players, and if it's not achieved, like it needs to be reprimanded. But that's the culture you mentioned earlier. Yeah, it has to be cultivated. It does, and it has to be consistent. Yes, at every single level, just like you mentioned. Yeah, it does, and and that's that's something that's so big for us is like. You know, a lot of times people talk about culture being driven by, like, adversity. Like, can you be the same person, like, when things aren't going really good? I also think it's important when when things are going really good, can you also be the same person? Like, as a hitter, like, can you be, like, seven for your last ten and still stay very, very committed to, like, your approach at the plate? 
right? Yep. And then can you be O for your last 10 and not buy into all the hype that, like, you're not very good? Mm-hmm. And, boy, it takes a tremendous level of maturity to be able to do that. Um, and, and I think that's the competitive advantage. I think that's the, the, the real sign of, like, athletic maturity. Yeah, no question so about it. you talk about a lot about competitive advantage. Like, what are some things you can do, like, as a leader to, like, really fa- facilitate, like, that growth for something like that and, like, make that competitive advantage? Yeah, I, I think that one of the biggest things is, like, giving your people autonomy. I think giving your people autonomy is so important. Like, if you if you put somebody in a position to lead that is technically, you know, quote-unquote, underneath you, if you put them in that position to lead... Um, Give them autonomy. Give them creative freedom. And you know what? Like when they do something, they might mess it up, and that's and that's okay. And that's okay. And when they do, that's a great time to like love on them and let them know, like, yay, there's some there's some things we can do a little bit better here. But um, it, it's crazy to me how like a lot of times like leaders get into these positions and they they want to like micromanage, I guess, like how their people go about leading, and and that's death. That's death for a leader. Um, and it's funny, in this role uh, with the Brewers, it's like, hey, failure, hey, that's a great thing. And then when failure happens, like, oh, I want to intervene and I want to, like, manipulate and, and make things go a certain way. No, man, like, I think the best bang for buck, bring in good people, educate them, and then just go, like, let them play. Go let them play. And when they fail, Hey man, like this is a good this is a good thing. Your failure is a good thing. You're gonna get better from it. But I think that that moment is the roadblock. I think that's where where leaders go wrong because it's like, oh my god, you failed. I've got to like flex my leadership muscles here, and I got to fix you. And it's like, no, like again, to the bike riding example, I'm gonna dust you off, I'm gonna clean you off, and get you back up on the bike. Try to try to not fall off the cliff this time. Try to not put the bike on its side this time. I think where leaders go awry at that point in time is they allow their ego mm-hmm. to get in the way. Yeah. I mean, from, from a business perspective, egos. I mean, I'm obviously not a coach, but maybe I'm a business coach. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I could look at myself that You're way. A leader a of men. Coach. You're a leader of men. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh, and we've talked about it a number of times. You know, when I come, I'm in a position to hire people, and when I do hire people, I always make sure that I hire people that are better than me mm. at something. Mm-hmm. And I delegate. Mm-hmm. And I delegate. I can. I delegate. I mean, I, I have am learned a, that from I am you. A prof- <laughs> I am a professional facilitator that has hired the right people, allowing me to delegate. And if I hire the right people that allows me to delegate, they're going to make me look good anyways. Amen. Amen. Uh, <laughs> so for us, um, you know, we have like we have a research and development department that works for us, and so like one of the guys that like, I guess on paper, quote unquote, like reports to me. He is like a hundred times smarter than me, you know, and, and that, that what you just said is like so important. Like, but I think that's where leaders do go wrong is like you get in the room with that guy that's smarter than you and it like, it makes you uncomfortable. And it's like, Hey, at the end of the day, what's, what's the common goal of our organization? And if this guy helps us, let's just like, like, let's let him do his thing. Yep. Um, and the guy that, that I'm speaking about, his name is August Fagerstrom. He's like one of the smartest human beings in baseball. Um, and I have the fortune to like work with this guy every day. Like he makes me better every day. Yep. But uh, yeah. it's as a leader, you can't yeah. feel threatened by that. No. Like, no, no. Is, now is this August guy, an analytics guy or. Yeah. So I, you know, I would say that's kind of how he got started. It was, was the analyst side, but then you, you pick his brain and it's like, well, he was interested in like skill acquisition stuff. And like, 
he just took the time to read about it and research and put it in an application. You pick his brain and you're like, uh, this guy's smarter than me. <laughs> so it's like, what am I going to do with this? Uh, am I going to get threatened by it or am I going to like learn from this guy? And like every day I work with this guy, I'm like, wow, I just got a little bit smarter today. It's pretty awesome. That's how I hang out with Kent. He makes me smarter. <laughs> but, but, it goes, but seriously, though, I mean, it goes back to humility, right? I mean, yeah. you're, you have that. You, you're a humble guy and you can accept the fact that somebody quote underneath you is going to teach you something sure you know i mean that's god what yeah. a great trait being a yeah. you, you didn't make it to the big leagues you said but as a professional baseball player you kind of learn to be humble through that, <laughs> that well that, that's got to happen let me tell quickly. you something if you google jake mckinley you're going to see the career stats you're going to be like wow this guy had every reason to be humble <laughs> <laughs> i think my era was like six six something in, in professional baseball um but yeah like i mean even when i got to that level it was just like you look at your teammates around and you're like wow these guys are like substantially better than me um and i think it was at that point that i was like ah, i'm probably gonna be a coach <laughs> you know uh so like what what can i what can i learn from these guys um yeah you know, that's that's a big piece of leadership is just being able to like step back and let people be excellent you know oh that's great to, great quote right there to go step back, back to let our, people be excellent our usual questions will will bring this back into the geomatics sure. profession. Uh, do you have a mantra you live by? Do the right thing. Um, that is actually my Simple. mantra for 2020. Is, is do the right thing. Like I, I think we are in a like self help generation where there's like so many books and like this. You got to live your life this way. You got to do this thing as a leader. At the end of the day, like your intuition as a leader is powerful, you know, and I, and I think when you're faced with like decision X or decision Y, like, you know what the right thing is. And sometimes the right thing is horribly, horribly uncomfortable. It will make people upset. You'll have people pissed off at you and doing the right thing is what a leader needs to do. So do the right thing is my mantra for 2020. And it, it might involve confrontation. Amen. <laughs> well, you can't be afraid yeah. of confrontation no, to be a good leader. It's inevitable. There's no doubt about it. No, no it's doubt. inevitable. Um, Can I ask the most important question? Well, I don't know if you want to get through yet. Let me <laughs> no, ask. No, no, no. This first. one's this one's a big one. Are you sure? Have you met Bob Euchre? <gasps> I have. <laughs> like, he's such a nice guy. I met him in spring training last year. I was I was walking down the hallway in our complex. I was like, oh my god! Like internally, like, oh my god, that's Bob Euchre. Like I, the I guy think from I would Major be more League. Excited to meet him. <laughs> he's such, just he's a bit outside. Such a good. He's such a nice guy. How old is Euchre? I don't know. A I don't thousand. know. Thousand. <laughs> uh, when, when he, sure. when he uh, it's gonna be a big loss. <laughs> when he goes, for sure. Oh man. I've, yeah. I've, I've got a couple. See, one thing I want to I want to allow you the opportunity to make sure you mention your mentors. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, when I first got into coaching, I worked for a 29 year old guy. His name is Chris Lewis. So he's now the assistant baseball coach at Upper Iowa University, um, and and he was just like so important for my uh, for my development. And the reason I say that is because. Um, he wasn't like much of a vocal, like this is how you have to coach, but boy, he was the role model, you know? And I think a lot of times in, 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 in leadership, like you, you encourage your people to do something, but if you encourage your people to do something and you're like, you're not the model of it, you're just wasting your time. And this guy was the model of work ethic. Like this guy slept in the office. Um, he just like worked his ass off all the time. And so like seeing him every day, I was just like, this is somebody I want to be like. And I was 21 years old, um, and he was he was 29 with a terrible product, and he was winning. And I was like, there's something different about this guy. 
From there, I went to Campbellsville University, a small college out in Kentucky. And then the head coach there was a 56-year-old at the time coach, southern guy, loved his people. He was a delegator. You know, like he was the guy that was like, hey, man, I hired you to do your job. Go out there and do your job. Um, I learned a lot from him because he was like the hands-off, the hands-off guy. So as a leader, like I saw the, the beacon of work ethic from Chris Lewis, and then Buford Sanders was the guy's name. He's still there at Kentucky. Um, he was just like the beacon of, I'm going to create a system, and I'm going to hire good people, and they're going to create a great product. That was powerful for me. Um, and then I, I would say my, my dad. You know, my dad is is the other one. Uh, my dad is, is really, really important in my development because – um, my dad's a nice guy. Like, he's a really nice guy. So when I first got into coaching, like the first four or five years, a critique on me was like, you are too nice. Like you are too nice to be a leader. And I would like Google it, like Huffington Post, like, can a, can a nice guy be a leader? <laughs> and then, and then it would be like a resounding, like, no, you can't. Like there's, there's studies that show that like nice guys can't be good leaders. Um, so when I became a head coach, I was heavily, heavily insecure, right? Because it was like, I'm too nice to do this head coaching thing. But then when it was like, okay, you could look at that and try to like be a jerk or you could take this niceness and double down on that and try to create like good environments to like love on your people and make them better people and hire good people to help your players. And honestly, hire a bad cop. Um, and that, and that really, really helped me. So I guess just having a dad that was like a super, super nice guy was important to me. And I, I didn't get into a lot of trouble as a kid. Um, I wasn't a perfect kid. Trust me. But I didn't get into a lot of trouble, and, and I never, like, really wanted to violate the rules. And, like, I had a really, really, like, nice, like, forgiving, super cool dad, you know? Um, yeah. It's a big deal to me as a coach. That's awesome. Uh, I got a couple I – I have a couple questions that a couple of buddies of mine, buddies of mine who are big baseball guys. So <laughs> do you think the Brewers thought when they traded for Christian Yelich that he was going to be an MVP caliber player? They got him for a steal, by the way. Yeah, I mean, what <laughs> Just the an understatement hell happened there. there? The Marlins. Oh. That talk about dumpster fires. <laughs> so one thing that I've like learned with the Brewers is so David Stearns is our GM, and I have just come to this place in my life where I trust David with everything, like every decision he makes, I trust it. Um. So when they got Christian Yelich, like, I've never asked them, like, did you think this was going to be an MVP candidate? But do I think that they probably knew that? Yeah, probably. I just think that, like, again, when we come to this leadership thing, David Stearns is 34 years old. He's the GM of a major league team. Yeah, I think it was 30 when he got this job. But as I've gotten to know David, like, what an incredibly nice guy. Um what like he he's so good at that autonomy piece i talked about earlier where he's like hey we hire good people and, and we let them work and i don't know if it was david that thought you know christian was going to be an mvp or if somebody else did but somebody in that department probably thought hey this is a good move for us and david pulled the trigger and that's that's enough for me so my answer to your question is probably i don't know the process that went into it but yeah. i do know this like David is an amazing leader, and he hires amazing people. 
It's infectious. It is. It, it really is. is. No buying, doubt. And then you got the culture that everybody buys into drinking the Kool Aid. <laughs> no I doubt. Mean, that's that's it, right? I mean, honestly, I'm a Cubs fan. Mm. Have been my entire life. Mm-hmm. But I'm sorry. I mean, the Brewers <laughs> are probably my World Series pick this year. Mm, I appreciate that. that I'm dead serious. I was, dead serious. I was just going to say, the, lo- yeah. the loaded question we have to ask, who's going to win the World Series this year? Well, obviously, it's going to be the Brewers. No, it's going to be the Mets. <laughs> it's going to be the Mets. Yeah, I, think I, it's can't, I, can't even, like, I can't even just pretend well, the, for the, our guest. The Cubs <laughs> did pick up, uh, who'd they get from you guys? Jeremy... Jeffers, right? Yeah, Jeremy Jeffers. Yeah. yeah. So, that's another guy. Yeah. Jeremy Jeffers. Great guy. Yeah. Great guy. I, I I never had a bad conversation with the guy. And he's a he's a really talented guy too. So yeah. 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 He just had to go play for the enemy. <laughs> so uh this poor guy. So Arky over there is sitting quietly. And what he, he needs to share with us is that his dad played in the White Sox organization. Oh. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that was uh, he played semi pro in the farm league. Yeah, back he, in the day, though. Yeah, back in the day. He played with uh, Phil Cavaretta. Yeah. Mr. Coffee. Yeah. Um, those are the only two guys that I yeah, know. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, he was a shortstop? Yeah, he was a shortstop. Yep, yep. Yeah. Yep, yep, Pape. He's an amazing yeah. human being and uh, <laughs> miss him greatly. Yeah, and God rest his soul. Absolutely, absolutely. So everybody has ties to baseball. Dude, it's everybody. the American pastime. I right? I. I, I uh, this guy has made a career and a life out of it, and I, I promise you I love it as much, if not more, than he does. You're going to be like, I knew him when. Oh, I know. When he's coaching. Oh. And he's, oh. on, he's on the geoholics of all things. <laughs> uh, amen, bro. I'll come back on anytime. I'll give him my card, you know. I'll get some tickets here and there. I'll be like, I'll tell Hudson, I knew this guy back then. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I, uh, I did a little research, and I'm just like, Best Milwaukee Brewers ever. So this is a top ten list, and you guys are much more baseball fanatics than I am. Uh, Robin Yount, number one, of course, lives here. Does he? Yeah, he lives in uh, he was, Scottsdale. Was, Get yeah, him he, on. He was he was on the D backs coaching staff for a long time. Paul Molitor, mm-hmm. of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, Raleigh Fingers, mm-hmm. Cecil Cooper. Yep. No, 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 no pushback so far. Right. <laughs> uh, number five, Ryan Braun. Oh yeah. Prince Fielder. Uh huh. <laughs> That guy was a vegan. Speaking of uh, vegan, you know, uh, Helton stuff. Ben Oglevy. Uh huh. Number eight, Christian Yelich. Oh yeah. Number nine, Gorman Thomas. Mm-hmm. Number ten, Jim Gantner. Some of those names you said, I only know them because I see them plastered in our oh, facility sure. every day when I walk yeah. down the hall. It's required. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to age myself. I actually went to a Brewers game in Milwaukee County Stadium. Oh, nice. Yep. While yeah. ago, and I've, of course I've been to Miller Park a number of times. And really. Awesome. Awesome Amazing. facility. Amazing. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Good. I mean, again, good culture around yes. there, you know, around the ballpark. Been up there and tailgated and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. It's just a lot of fun. When it the is. Cubs fans go up there, you know, the Milwaukee fans are pretty welcoming for the most part. Oh, it's yeah. always a good time. It's a friendly rivalry. Everybody you know, shares a beer. <laughs> oh, beers, brats, <laughs> cheese curd. Yeah. You name People it. People in Wisconsin, they're yeah, the totally nicest agree. people I've ever met. Absolutely. It's totally unbelievable. Agree. Totally agree with you. Now, so, as far as like one of the best runs for a short time with the Brewers, you got to go CC Sabathia. Oh man, that was that was an impressive run. Mm-hmm. I, obviously, way before your day, it. he crushed it. Yeah, what was that two thousand eight? And and oh, it wait. got him how big of a contract from the Yankees? <laughs> oh man, <laughs> very sizey. So as much as your top ten list, no, I it's just amazing had to throw how that one, one good there. year. Can, oh, it'll get you paid. It'll make a, it'll make a player's life. Basically. Look at Garrett Cole. You know, you know. Look what's at crazy? Nick Castellanos. Oh, yeah, yeah, seriously. From that's the, the Reds? guy. 
From the Reds? Yes. I know. I was just talking about that with somebody today. I'm like, I was hoping I was, I was hoping somehow that the Diamondbacks are going to put Chris Bryant. Because mm. being a Cubs fan, selfishly, I would love to see him come here. Sure. But once Castellanos went to the Reds, the Cubs could afford Chris Bryant. Mm-hmm. So that was probably not going to happen as far as coming our way. But man, oh man, he got a big payday. Yeah. I, it'll 60, be interesting to see if he can... For four years, then... Yeah, I think we're going to see a trend in Major League Baseball, though, because a lot of times these guys get these huge deals, right, because they have a great year, and it's almost like you're paying them for what they did, mm-hmm. not what they're going to do. But I think our analytics departments are getting so good at projecting what a guy's value is. Um, I think, so they're going to get paid accordingly to what they'll do. I would say that the last player to get that is going to be Albert Pujols. Mm-hmm. That was a big deal. <laughs> oh, big that. time. Oh, my deal. goodness. That was a lot of money to oh, just eat. Yeah. You know, Garrett Cole got a ton, he but did. he's a pitcher, and as yeah. a pitcher, I'm yeah. assuming you know Goldschmidt it's a different world. Got a lot of years left. He's got nothing. Goldschmidt's deal wasn't a, wasn't a bad deal he's for the cheap. Cardinals. For he's the Cardinals, cheap. yeah, wasn't for a bad what deal. he is. Yeah, that guy. You know, he's he's always been friendly. I can't believe this team got rid of him, but that's yeah. a side note. Yeah, he just yeah. went to the bad team. <laughs> and that NL Central. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> Ryan, you got anything else, buddy? I know uh, I'm going to let you have the last question. Uh, no, I'm going to just let Jake cut me off, or else we're going to talk baseball for another week. <laughs> I'm here for the, If this is something that will light me up, you know. Uh, so, the, Jake. The geomatics and all that is one uh, thing. Baseball is a whole other level. Yeah. So, during the season, Jake, what do you do? Then? Are you here in Arizona? Or you go to Milwaukee? Would you travel around? What do you do? I go all over the place. Do you yeah, really? I'm, I'm the traveling circus. Oh, um, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So, during spring training, I'll be here. And then as we, you know, transpire into the regular season, I'll, I'll be all over the place. So, But I'll, I'll have, you know, moments here in Arizona as well. Uh, this is my home base, so I, I try to get back here when I can. But, uh, yeah. you know, when you have 300 people scattered across the country, you, you, you got to show your face. I'll do my last question. It's a shameless plug, Go question, request. You know, I don't have the schedule open in front of me, but when the Brewers are in town, are the Geoholics front row? The Geoholics... We'll be getting uh, guest passes to the uh, family section. Oh, so, now yeah, I'm excited! Absolutely. Like you guys are going to sit. <laughs> oh, finally, this thing is paid off. And here's the beauty of it. Here's the beauty of it. The Brewers have extended the netting all the way down, so you'll be safe. Foul ball comes your way. <laughs> yes, you're going to be protected, my friend. I'll bring the little guy, and we'll be good to go. <laughs> oh man, that's great. That's great. Well, Jake, <laughs> I can't thank you enough for being here, man. Well, I really enjoyed awesome. it. I love yeah. t- I love touching on the topics that we did. It was awesome. Yeah, man. I appreciate this, guys. This I appreciate, is awesome. I appreciate all our guests, but I, I, I think I may have a favorite <laughs> at this point. I think you have a special place in your heart for Jake. <laughs> we got a front runner in the clubhouse, boys. <laughs> I love it. Hey, <laughs> anytime. Thank you guys That's for having awesome. me. I all appreciate right. it. Well, let's not forget to thank, uh, thank Brian Helton, of course, and Helton Brewing Company. Great setting here in the brew house. Come down to Br- uh, Helton's anytime and uh, check out their amazing list of beers as well as a great menu. Check out uh, the Geoholics at thegeoholics.com. Like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and download all the podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify, or just download our free app from landsurveyorsunited.com. Never miss another episode. If you want to be a guest on a future show or become a friend of the program, email us at info at thegeoholics.com. Kolar's dangerous, taking us out. Check them out on tour with St. Motel. And baseball season's coming soon, boys. Bam.
Thanks again to our friends of the program. Please be sure to check out Land Surveyors United at landsurveyorsunited.com, Unifly at unifly.aero, Bad Elf at bad-elf.com, and Parkland College at parkland.edu forward slash surveying.